Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and the ways we're embarrassing ourselves in VR. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good. How you doing, Joe? Mm, pretty good. Busy couple weeks. Yeah. Lots of progress on lots of projects. <laughs> so you've got uh, you've got some homework to do the next couple weeks, it looks like. Yeah, I uh, I had to kind of do a, a gear shift a little bit and set FM comparison aside for a couple of weeks and really knock out prepping for the FileMaker 19 release, which we don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but it should be relatively soon-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find, you know, changing gears between JavaScript and C Sharp to native code Swift and C Sharp, really not easy on my brain. <laughs> and so I can't do it three times a day. Yeah. I need to kind of say, today is Swift and kind of go from there. Today is all FM perception. Um, and the first thing I had to fix is right this second, I can't release new Windows software. Um, Oh, because of the Visual Studio issue you talked about? No, no, that's that's more related to uh, FM comparison. Uh, my problem is I can't digitally sign Windows software. Hmm. Um, there is a signing certificate that you get, and that allows you to sign it and say, this was made by me, and nobody else could have possibly made it. And um, mine expired. They only last for three years. On the Apple side, it's relatively nice because Apple handles all the cert generation. And even though you get a new one basically every year, you pay your 99 bucks and they'll give you a cert. No problem. Particularly if you're doing it as an individual. Um, When you do the Windows stuff outside of the Windows store, Microsoft doesn't do the cert generation. Mm Mm-hmm. You have to go to a third party to get it. And so I'm going to this third party. The problem is the third party that I got the cert from last time got bought by somebody else. And they're not trusting any of the previous company's validations. They're redoing them. And in the process, FM Perception was always signed as by James Ramsey. And this time I'm trying to get it fixed so that it actually has my company name in there. So by Hierarch LLC. And so now I'm trying to prove that it's a real company and this is its address and this is its phone number and I'm real. Please believe me, I'm real. I mean, if you want to have them call your office manager, you can have them call me. (laughs) That would only confuse things because that would be a different phone number. True. They're trying to tie four or five different pieces of disparate data together and find independent validation that they trust that says that all of this is there and real. So I've got my filing with the state of Ohio. Well, my filing with the state of Ohio has my lawyer's address, not my Mm. address. Mm -hmm. So I can prove that it's a real company, but that doesn't prove anything about me or how they associate with me. And kind of the last step of this entire process, when they're all done and they get it all validated, they go, okay, now we're actually going to physically call you. And you have to pick up the phone and say, yes, I'm me. And all of this is real. And because once they've tied the company 
to the phone number and the address, then they tie that to a person who requested the cert, and then I get the cert. The awesome part is I get to do this once every three years. Um, the bad news is I have to do this once every three years. Yeah. I'm trying to do some additional things. Like one of the things that they'll accept is a D and B number, a Dun and Bradstreet number, mm -hmm. which I've never really bothered to get. Workflow Data Systems has one, and I think it just happened. Like I, I don't think we did anything to make it happen, but it happened. Um, Hierarch doesn't have one. So you can request one and they'll give you one in like two weeks. If you want it faster than that, you can pay like 500 bucks. Um, it's really just a scam. I've, I've never heard of anybody wanting to use the Dun & Bradstreet data. I'm sure at some corporate level it happens where you use it to like, oh yes, this company has good credit, but... No, we used them. I have one for my company. That's how I got my Apple developer account set up it is way easier to set up that way um rather than going through the process that doesn't involve that so it's it, it's easier that way they do send you credit offers all the time which is kind of annoying but we also used it a lot at one of the companies i worked where we had a lot of government contracts and they wouldn't even talk to you if you didn't have a done press rate number like that was just that was step one to even getting in somebody's email inbox was having that. So yeah, they, they're definitely necessary for certain types of companies. I probably don't need one, but it, it, like I said, it made setting things up with Apple five minutes instead of weeks of back and forth. Right. So. But I also was doing that with no deadline looming over me. Right. Like I had weeks to wait for the Dun & Bradstreet number to come in the mail and stuff like that. Yeah. So they're like, hey, you can use this. Basically, it's like an international Yellow Pages thing, and you can get an account there. And I'm like, great. And I go and I try and set that up. Their submission page doesn't work. <laughs> it, it always fails to validate the form that you filled in, and nothing I can do. I even switch to Chrome. Nope. It might be I, something that only works in IE, and I haven't yeah. gotten to the point of trying to do that. I went to another part, page that they went to. One of the things they'll accept is a letter from your accountant that verifies all of this information. So I sent an email to my accountant and said, hey, can I get this? And she's like, whoa, wait a second. Some of the things they're asking for in this letter are things that like we have to do an audit to verify that these things are true. <laughs> and there's legal requirements for them making legal statements of opinion. <sighs> so... Can't you just find a different certificate provider? They're all like this. Hmm. This is just the process. Um, and it doesn't help that Hierarch, for the most part, doesn't interact directly with customers. Yeah. Nobody buys the software from me. They buy the software from my publisher. They, you know, it, it's just, I just need to be able to sign this stuff. Um. I mean, in a real pinch, what might work is I may talk to Todd and see about if I can, because I think he's got one for Geist. And in a pinch, I might be able to sign the software as Geist. But that has its own legal issues there and whether Todd would even be comfortable with that because there's potential for problems if you start letting your digital signing certificate outside a nice walled garden. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... 
Anyway, so that was kind of the first thing that I had to at least start the process going. And that's a nice little annoying thing that once every 24 hours or so, it pops back on my radar and I get annoyed and then I get to move that one forward and then try and shift back into the code I'm trying to do. The next thing I tried to mess with was, hey, I've got an outstanding bug that's just popped up within the last week or so that people are seeing in um, a particular sub-query of the top call stats analysis. And I was like, okay, well, let me, let me kind of use this as getting me back into FM perception mode, and I'll, I'll knock this thing out. Oh, boy. <clears throat> um, for one thing, I can't figure out why it suddenly stopped working. Like, it used to work. It doesn't work now. Something somewhere along the line changed. You just described, like, half of my job. <laughs> Um, I'm getting bug reports from users or crash reports, but crash reports are, uh, they don't have all the data you need. Mm -hmm. And the biggest problem is when a crash occurs in your code, the crash report doesn't have the name of the thing that was running at the time it crashed. It just has a hexadecimal memory location mm -hmm. in your application. And so when it's running Apple's code and it crashes, that information is actually in the operating system. So it can tell you the name of the Apple function that was running at the time, but your stuff is just these numbers. Really not helpful, particularly when you reuse the same code a lot. So there's processes for symb symbolication of bug reports. Mm -hmm. And every single time I have to do this, I have to dig in and figure out the command line functions for doing it. And it's a huge pain. Just, just obnoxious. I finally found an app that basically does it. You go, here's the bug report. Here's your dsim file. DSYM, it's a it's a thing that basically says this memory location means this function. And you slam those two together and you come out and you get functions. And I'm like, yay! Problem two. <laughs> this is my least favorite kind of bug. Because the place where the or sorry. The 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 crash is not where the bug is. <laughs> like, the code that's crashing is so simple, it basically can't have a problem. So, all I'm doing is pulling data out of a dictionary. There's a dictionary there, check to see if this key exists. If it does, grab the result and shove it back. That's all this function does. That function is crashing. Um, and to make it even worse, this only happens in the release version of the software, not in the debug version. The debug version runs happy as a clam, no problem. But when I build it for release, that code crashes. So, which is fun because then I really need to do the symbolication of the bug reports because I don't have a debugger running when the code crashes. So I have to be using Apple's bug reports to figure out where it's happening. Anyway, 
Um, this code is a multi-threaded, take a ton of data and condense it down into some nice, reasonable chunks. And somewhere along the line in operating system updates or API updates or something, that code no longer works. And so I had to figure out how to kind of rewrite it in a cleaner way. And it was kind of like getting down to that point where in Swift, for the most part, you don't have to worry about memory management. You know, you stop using a thing and Swift takes care of it for you. It goes away. Mm -hmm. In this particular case, I had to be very careful about what part was being stored as a Swift object and what part was being stored as a Swift raw data type. Because arrays are not multi-threaded safe for writing to. So you can't edit an array. But if you have an array of dictionaries, my understanding was you could screw with the dictionary and you'd be fine. That is not the case. Or at least it's not the case anymore. So I ended up having to wrap the contents up in another data type. So it's like, this part is a Swift array and that contains objects. And once you do that, those objects are editable in a multi-threaded way. I, I don't know, man. Seems to be working now. That's where I've got a test version out to the people who are having the issue to see if, if it really resolves it. So. Mm. Eh. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of that. I mean, the good news is it was basically reproducible and some of these memory kinds of things aren't. It'll be entirely dependent upon what else the machine has been doing or what else the application has been doing prior to that point because you just get weird memory collisions. Um, yeah. So the other thing that I do as a general rule of thumb when getting ready to do a new major version of FM Perception is make sure that I'm running the latest APIs of everything. And that involved converting the app to Swift 5, Xcode 11, and building in Catalina. Hmm. Yeah, so that's a little bit of fun. So did you, have you been running Catalina? Uh, no, not really. Um, I've got it, I had it running, <laughs> I actually still had a beta installed in a partition. Nice. And that was fun in and of itself, trying to upgrade to the full version. It errored out a couple of times. Anyway. Catalina's happy, Xcode 11 is installed there, I converted the app to Swift 5, the app is notarized, the notarization process is faster than it was the last time I tested this, which is kind of cool, so it's less than five minutes to get back a notarized version of my app, um, which should make it easier for more users to install on Macs. Um, there was a fun spot in the Swift 5 conversion I'd remembered that um, one of the things they fixed in a recent Swift was that Swift strings are arrays of characters. And they'd messed with that for a while, and now it's back. And I'm like, yay! Except it's not. It kind of is. But 
it's very, very restricted in how you talk to those characters. Hmm. If I have my string, open square brace, or square bracket, zero, close square bracket, if I tell you it's an array of characters, you think that's going to work, right? No. That doesn't work. But if you do the open square bracket, and then put in this whole long string of like how to find the index of zero, that works. You can't just send it an integer. Now, the thing is, it's there. The function actually exists. It's been hidden from us. It's like one of those private APIs. So you put in this whole long thing that in the end means zero. Now, as I was digging into this, I was thinking, okay, maybe this is one of those Swift security safety things where they want to make sure that if you hand it zero on an empty string... It doesn't crash. No, it still crashes. It doesn't give you any safety whatsoever. It just is a bunch of long text that means zero. You can't just say, oh, there's eight characters, loop through one or zero through seven, and we found each of the individual characters. That doesn't work. You have to do these weird index crawling things, which is asinine. I'm like, this is one of the, this is exactly what I think of when I think of Swift periodically getting up its own butt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, there are spots where what they're doing totally makes sense. And there are spots where what they're doing, you have to think about it for a while. And then you go, okay, I can see what they're trying to do here. I have no earthly clue what it is they're trying to accomplish. And the end result code is completely inscrutable unless you've worked with it a lot. And working with it a lot doesn't suddenly bring respect. It just barely brings understanding. Can, can you tell I'm a little cranked up about this one? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I, this is a, a horrible way to think about programming languages, but I, I tend to think of them as how, as how much money they make me. And Swift hasn't made me very much money so far. And I think I've made the most money writing PHP, which is an old, boring language with lots of problems and lots of people hate it. But it's probably 65% of my income for the last five years. Mm -hmm. So I like it. It's great. I'm going to keep writing it. (laughs) I, I like languages that make sense. Mm-hmm. They don't have to make sense. They just have to be documented for me anyway, as long as I can find the answer, because I'm not a hardcore programmer. I'm yeah. not interested in the underlying computer science stuff. I just want to develop stuff with with APIs, with UI frameworks and stuff like that. I just want to make things. I'm not interested in all of the sophisticated stuff under the under the hoods and how memory works and pointers and any of that crap. I, I dabbled in some of that over the last couple of years and I learned just enough about that stuff to say, that's not for me. I just want to make stuff. Mm. So I'm, you know, perfectly content in Vue or A-Frame or PHP mm-hmm. or even just writing WordPress template pages, which is like some of the sloppiest code you can imagine. <laughs> but pays the bills. Yeah, I... I guess one of the things that I like about a good language is one where it's writable. Mm-hmm. Can you write in the language? And this particular syntax, 
looks like the kind of thing that I'm going to have to look up every single time I want to do a string access. Mm -hmm. Every single yeah. time. Because it's not the kind of thing that I'm going to remember. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, if you want the last character, what you want is like the end index or the the last index before the end index thanks guys that's really helpful why can't i just use string dot count minus one mm -hmm. every programmer on the planet that's done any substantive programming sees string dot count or string dot length minus one and goes oh that's the last character thanks mm -hmm. but this long mess i don't think helps anybody yeah. It's not helping the compiler. It's not making the code more stable. It's just overhead. And if I have to look it up every time, I mean, my answer was I've actually written code that I did back when you couldn't do substrings at all or, or, or uh, index accessing. I wrote my own subs subscript extensions. And rather than throw those away, I just kept them. But now you got to have an extension to make the language look reasonable. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yes, Swift has made me quite a bit of money, and in general, I like it. But periodically, as part of their migration and slow evolution, I think they've made some exceptionally bad choices. Not a lot. Not all over the place. And it's not a terrible language. It's just every once in a while, all these comp sci nerds just go just go way off the beaten path. So while I'm doing that, I'm also commenting with Joe and trying to help him out on getting into diff display, which is cool because it's kind of what the core of the application is about. Yeah. <laughs> but it's surprisingly complicated. Um. Mm. I wouldn't say complicated. They're just a lot of permutations. It, it is difficult to get right. Yeah, but that's that's the product. Yeah. So like that's that's the reason that we're doing it. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's difficult. I would say it's it's the point. <laughs> okay. Granted. So yeah. So since the last episode, we. Settled on some more changes to the sidebar and kind of came up with what I think is a pretty good solution to the problem where we talked about last week about having categories in the sidebar and then kind of grouping rows. So category categories, but we're calling them groups. Um, and those group rows were still selectable. And so was it really a good way to make them not selectable using the table component that we were using and I looked at some other options and everything that I looked at just was way too much work for really not much of a good payoff. And then on top of that, our table cell itself is also fairly complicated with the layout inside there. So what I came up with instead was we're going to leave the grouping rows selectable or clickable and just have something there for the user, which Seems obvious now. It took me a week to <laughs> arrive there. Yeah, I remember when you pulled that one out, we're like, huh, yeah, that'd be really, yeah. it would start just brainstorming all these ideas of things that we can put on this, this real estate that we just found that 
the UI was meaning we had to have anyway. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to end up with like kind of a part help documentation slash reporting section in some of these groups. And we haven't really settled on exactly what lives there yet, but we've got a big list of ideas. But that was that kind of solves most of the problems. There's still some formatting issues where we, we have kind of like a primary and a secondary row style in that table. And the we're using the secondary one for the grouping rows. So the grouping rows are shorter. They use a smaller font. They use all caps. But the, the downside of that is the, the background color for the grouping rows looks almost identical to the default styling for the selected row. So it's kind of hard to tell which one of these is active. So I need to spend some time coming up with a new selected style. Um, but we figured enough of it out where I can handle the implementation later. And Dave wanted me to move on to the detail cards. So we're skipping over from the sidebar. There's item list in the middle and then the detail cards is kind of the main body of the application. So we're skipping over items for now. There's a lot of work to be done there, but it's also, it's all pretty well defined. Um, whereas the detail card needs a lot more thinking and back and forth, you know, really picking Dave's brain to figure out exactly how to display this data. So that's really been the focus for the last 10 days or so. And it's going pretty well. Um, cleaning up those cards, I've got the layout structured with kind of a developer tab there for now so we can view some of the underlying JSON data. I need to add some of the XML there as well so Dave can use that for debugging. And then a, on the, the actual UI tab, the thing that will survive um, the development process is a, a, all of this is inside a, like a bootstrap card. And then we've got a, a be simple table so this is the style that we couldn't use in the sidebar, but actually works really well here because each one of these, we're, we're technically, we have a table here, but we have so many different things to put there that it really doesn't make sense to use anything but the be simple table where each individual row can be completely different. Each individual cell can be completely different. Um, so basically as if you were writing the table in raw HTML with no framework at all. Like that's the level of control we have here. We can on a line by line, cell by cell basis, we can do whatever we want. And that's going to be helpful because we've got dozens of different row types to show here. Mm -hmm. um, we've got kind of subcategories, you know, ways to group things up. We've got things that Dave is calling no change. So it kind of breaks my brain, but we have <laughs> something has changed, but nothing has changed. Here you go. Um, we've got lots of those. And then we've also got changes where we need to highlight this value changed from this to this. And that's where we get into some of the diff formatting stuff. And I'm going to link in the show notes um, a JavaScript library called JSDiff. And there's a little um, example thing on a little widget you can play with online, type in some values into two boxes and see the different diff types. They do character and word and line diffing. And essentially what this 
what these methods produce is just an, an array of objects. So you feed it a string, you feed it two strings, and it feeds you back an array of objects, and you take that array and reassemble it into a string again. But as you're iterating over it, you check each section to say, hey, is this a removed element? If so, let me add some formatting to it. Is this a added element? Let me add some of this formatting to it. So it's actually pretty versatile. Mm -hmm. it, it took me a little while to figure out how to use it. Yeah. I'm pretty comfortable now. And uh, we can do a lot with it. It seems to be fast. Um, we don't have a ton of diff data yet. Like I've got a big DDR with many records, and I've got to the point where I can load 500 records in the item list and then select all of those and load them in the detail card. And there was no perceptible difference from before I added this comparison at the cell level and after. So I think it's fast, but we'll see. So lots of stuff to do there. The The default output of that returns you like a single string where here the red letters are the things you got rid of and the green letters are the things that you added. And that's not really not really very helpful especially on a character by character basis uh, we were looking at numbers and numbers just you get a new number that's not how <laughs> numbers work <laughs> you can't just mash together two part like a dozen parts of two numbers in a new order like that's not how numbers work so we'll have to be using word-based diffs for numbers and, and a lot of stuff but some of the character stuff may come in handy for like uh say a field name where you just changed a single character um, you know, I changed it from contact to contacts, mm -hmm. something like that. It would be helpful for highlighting stuff like that. Yeah, I was thinking about issues in a lot of cases in FileMaker will remove spaces in names of things, um, mm -hmm. often in scripts, but almost certainly in table or field names and things like that. And so doing word diffing on those is going to have a tendency to just go, here's the old one, here's the new one, thanks. Like, eh, I'm not quite sure that's where we want to go with that. But if yeah. we're doing down to the character level, I was also thinking that we might want to consider some kind of threshold mm -hmm. that says, beyond this many changes, just call it a new thing. Because the mm -hmm. nature of the way that 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 diffing algorithm works is if there's a, a single shared character between the two things, it will go, well, here's the common character and everything else is different. Mm -hmm. And that's going to yeah. just create a bunch of visual clutter on the screen. Whereas if you cross this, my brain said 60%, but we could play with that number. Like if more than 60% of the characters are different, just say it's a whole new thing. Mm -hmm. um, just to kind of reduce the visual clutter. Just assume that the entire sequence is new. Yeah. Because the fact that the word of in the middle is common between the two is not helpful. I think more likely what I would want to do is default to using word-based diffing wherever possible and only pull out the character diffing when we can, when we know it's a very small number of changes. Mm -hmm. So one or two characters changed. Let's highlight that as opposed to the word that changed. Right. Um, but how, how we can get that working in such a way that 
and we're going to end up basically calling diffing on the same two strings multiple times to be able to figure out those answers. Yeah. So we'll have to figure out the best approach to, you know, kind of being, I don't know, stingy mm-hmm. with when, what, when we call into that. Yeah. But yeah, it's a fascinating problem. I'm going to spend a lot of time noodling on that and coming up <laughs> with different stuff. And... You're, you're really good for the noodling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had to pull myself away from it this morning because I had other stuff to do, but like I could just do this all day. <laughs> How to make this difference really clear. Yeah. So some of the other stuff I've been working on, um, making, you know, tiny amounts of progress in the web VR stuff. Um, the issue that I described last episode where I had this awesome web VR development environment and then I broke it because I had the new version of edge and that issue has now been resolved. I'm not sure if it was a windows update or an edge update or both, but things are working now. Um, so that's good. What I found is kind of how I was, how I'm end up developing for web VR with this headset rather than like, obviously like standing inside the scene and editing it in real time is very cool, but it's not the most practical way of coding because <laughs> I can touch type fairly well for like, you know, a paragraph for an email, but with coding, not so much. Like all the brackets and angle brackets and semicolons, like I, I tend to lose my way around pretty quickly. So it's just not the, the fastest way to work. So what I end up doing is have the headset next to me and I'm working in VS Code using a live preview thing and got the code running in a browser. I'll do most of the changes and just check them in the browser on the desktop. And then every couple of minutes, I'll throw the headset on and hop into the scene and check it out there. And one of the, it's kind of a good and bad thing. The the entire Windows Mixed Reality environment works with a mouse, which is hard to explain, but you've got a 2D pointing device that works in any direction in 3D. And it basically works like the mouse lands on obstacles in a ray casting form. So projecting out from where the user is, it lands on the first surface that it interacts or intersects with. So you can move it from window to window. You can move stuff around in the scene. Um, So it's, like I said, it's really cool, technically speaking, but it means I actually have to use a mouse in VR. I can't use a touch screen when I can't see the screen. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, the Windows Mixed Reality headset doesn't have hand tracking. I can see that, you know, within a couple of years being very, very cool. But that's, that's later. So what I end up doing is uh, you know, just testing in the browser, hopping into VR, using the mouse to hop into the scene, pan around, move around, whatever I need to do, and then hop out. And it's, it's a pretty fast process. It's way faster than what I was doing before, which was, you know, basically do all the changes in the browser, come up with what I think is a good enough change to push, um, compile that, FTP it up to my server, literally go to the other room where the Oculus Play Space is set up, put that headset on, hop into the browser there and check it out and then come back. So it's we're down from like, you know, two minutes every run to just a couple seconds. And uh, how how many steps yeah. are you getting while doing that? <laughs> well, now none. 
because I'm not doing that mm. anymore. Um, so I've also been running into some weird issues, you know, as I'm working with this stuff and just uncovering bugs. Um, one of them is something I mentioned last episode where I'm working, I've got a project that's set up with view and a frame and I've got a project that's set up with just a frame. So no other dependencies at all. And that's the one I'm using to kind of learn how a frame works and follow some tutorials. And the other one's kind of my sandbox site where I can combine some of the stuff I'm doing on Dave's projects with view with some of the stuff I'm doing in a frame. And the way that that is building, I can't load 3d assets. Like, don't know why I have a theory, but I don't know enough to troubleshoot it yet, but it has something to do with the way that view serves the, the content. And it seems to have maybe just certain file formats that it's looking for to include with your build. So the way that assets work in A-Frame, you can throw a folder of assets in your project. So I literally have a folder called assets and I've got some audio files in there. I've got some 3D models, some materials, and I've tried multiple different types of 3D models. So OBJ files and uh, GLFT, I think, is the standard for the kind of web optimized one. I forget exactly what it is. But I got some of those. And all of those work in my HTML project. They do not work in my view project. And they fail silently. Like there's no errors or anything. View just never includes them. My code will show the links to them, show the URL, the path to them, but the, the files just won't make it into that build. So it has something to do with something called Webpack, which we're using at some layer in all of this mess of dependencies to actually compile this view app into that tiny little blob of optimized, unreadable code that it produces. So yeah, it that doesn't work yet. I posted some stuff on Stack Overflow. I've had lots of people look at it and nobody say a thing. So yeah, that. The other issue that I found is yesterday I, I made a scene called uh, Spring Sunday where I just wanted a place to play with different colors and shapes and rotations and sound. And I found a little ambient track that I can use, like a 10-minute ambient song that I licensed and threw that up there and just created this kind of abstract environment, playing around with some of the different environmental effects and you know, just lots of different shapes and colors and stuff. And I got my scene built using it in the Samsung Odyssey. Everything's working fine. I go use it in the Quest. And the way that you access WebVR in Quest, you put the headset on, you're immediately in VR in this kind of Oculus home environment. And you've got a user interface in front of you that shows you all your all the games and apps that you have in your library. There's like a settings menu, there's a built-in browser. So I go to the browser and load the page that I'm working on. And at this point, I've already you know built and compiled the thing and up uploaded it to my site. So I'm testing on the real, you know, quote unquote finished product. I go there, it loads the page, the music starts playing, and then this little enter VR button in the corner. You point the laser at that and click that and it transports you in the scene. As soon as you do, the audio is distorted in just kind of a oh. weird way. It works It works when I'm out of VR, like I'm in VR in the headset, but I'm not in web VR mode. 
the same audio works outside, but as soon as I go inside, it's like slightly distorted and staticky and weird. And I have no idea what's causing that. And basically, I just need to figure out who to report that to. I don't think it's a web VR thing because it's not happening on Windows. It's not happening in Firefox. I haven't tried Firefox on the head on the Quest. Maybe I'll try that next. But uh, it, I think it's an Oculus browser issue. So I just need to figure out who to tell that about. And I'm sure they'll fix it because they've been really good about fixing stuff. But it's one of those things like it's kind of hard to diagnose exactly what is happening here. It's hard to explain as well. So, yeah. The other thing, this is definitely a bigger concern, not so much for me, but just for web VR in general. Of the last, you know, five years or so, web VR has been a thing. And, you know, maybe two years ago, web XR started to replace web VR as they started adding more AR features to it and mixed reality features to it. They kind of replaced the, web VR framework with or the standard with WebXR. And Oculus browser got support for WebXR at the beginning of the year or end of last year. And on April 30th, without really much notice to anybody, they just terminated support for web VR in their browsers, which means almost everything that I've ever used in web VR doesn't work anymore. So we're talking millions of 360 videos and photos all over the internet, just don't load anymore. Or they'll load, but you can't go into VR. Um, all of the stuff that's, like when you load up the Oculus browser and you open a new tab, they load it with a bunch of suggestions and none of those suggestions work. So it's like, you guys really screwed up here. And there's a bunch of people on their developer forum, you know, having some very not, some very unprofessional rants, but you know, I get the anger, but maybe tone it down a notch. It's not really the best way to get somebody to help you by screaming at them. But yeah, hopefully they'll, I don't know what the solution is to that. Like on the one hand, it makes sense to deprecate old frameworks. They should have done that in like five years when they know that nobody's using it. Um, but it seems like they were in a hurry to clean that out of there. So yeah. So that's about the end of my development update. I had a little uh, encounter in VR that is worth recounting. So in uh, an app called Altspace, which is like a social app that's available on lots of platforms, you can use it outside of VR even. Um, they were doing some Reggie Watts concerts. So I decided, you know, I've been to concerts before in VR. I'll go check out the Reggie Watts thing. So I went and Altspace is... It's a really cool place, but it's one of those places where everybody has very basic avatars. So you're, the tracking of your body is basically done by the position of your headset. I don't have any full body tracking or anything. And then you've got arms but the, or the hands, but they're not really attached. So they're like very abstract, cartoony looking avatars. And you're essentially like, you know, a human shaped cylinder <laughs> moving around. Um, so we're, you know... We're in this place, the show gets started, he's walking around talking to people, telling anecdotes, singing songs, just generally being a weird guy. And I'm up on the balcony on the second floor, you know, just finding a place where I can kind of be with the rest of the crowd, but not necessarily right in the middle of it. And at one point, you know, it's you know, 45 minutes into it, I'm 
37 years old, my back hurts, I'm going to sit down. Don't think about what my avatar is shaped like. And he's right in the middle of this anecdote. I sit down and he says, hey, look, everybody, and points to me. He's like, look at that guy right there. He's sticking through the floor. That's classic. <laughs> That's just classic. <laughs> Like literally just point and laugh at that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. And I'm just like kind of wave and he like waves like he's like, Yeah, uh huh, wave. Like, classic. <laughs> I just stand back up and say, like, Yeah, I'm gonna leave soon. <laughs> all all of my social anxiety also works in VR. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was it was hilarious. It was a fun show though. <laughs> Joe guest stars at the Reggie Watts show. Anyway, be careful about where you're sticking your avatar.